You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get if I run ads for you? What are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie, if you want, for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag, and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item. So you get one free item for penis havers, one free item for vulva havers, one free item for couples, and then you also get six free movies from the AdamEve.com website. You can get your favorite porn or an educational film. I love free movies. They're so awesome. This is such a great deal. And then, on top of that, you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So, to redeem this great offer, what you're going to do is you're going to go to AdamEve.com. You're going to go to checkout, and you're going to type in DarkPod. That's D-A-R-K. P-O-D at checkout, and you're going to get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off, and then you're going to get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. Content Warning The Language content and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hey everybody, Drew here. On this episode of Disability After Dark, there is a brief discussion of suicidal ideation, and there is a brief discussion of eating eating things and eating discussions and stuff that may be a trigger for some individuals listening. So I just want to give you a proper content warning and a heads up that we'll be discussing this in this episode. And if that's a trigger for you, I fully understand. But now, on to the show.
You're listening to Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories with your host, disability awareness consultant, Drew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm your disabled daddy, your disabled Dick Smith, and your disabled dreamy person. I am Daddy Drew Gerza. Hello. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get the show started. First thing is first, I got to give a shout out to my friend Cameron Hillroy, who pledged $5 a month to the Patreon feed at patreon.com slash disability after dark. So Cameron, you get the show one day early and an awkward shout out for me. And I'm going to say... Cameron Hillroy, you're going to be my hot party boy. Thank you so much for pledging your $5 and for supporting the show. And if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or up to $5 a month or more to keep the show going. Thank you so much for your pledge, Cameron. As you are listening to this, it is January 2nd. It's already 2021. Holy wow, I can't believe we're here. And I would love to hear from you in a Minnesota type thing. You can write in your stories. You can leave a voice note. I'd love to hear from the disabled listeners. What do you, what kind of cool disabled things do you want to have happen in 2021? What things, we've had such a crappy year, all of us. What things do you, as a disabled community, what things do you want to hear or have happened to our communities as disabled people in 2021. So send that in for a Minnesota. Send me an email at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Let me know episode ideas for that, and I'd love to hear from you. Also, I want to do more episodes, so if you want to be a guest, be sure to email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com, and we would love so much to hear from you. But now, let's get on to the show. One of the things I love about this show is sitting down and listening to people's stories. And this one today is a story that I was really, really glad to sit down with this person. They reached out to me and said, hey, I don't know if you still want to listen to or talk with a young person about disability, but I want to come on Disability After Dark and tell my story to you, Drew. So would you want to do that? And I was like, of course I do. I love sitting down with young people who are from the generation after me hearing about their experiences because we don't hear enough from youth going through disability and I think it's such an important conversation and I was so excited to have it with my guest today. So let me tell you all about them. On the show today, I sit down with my new friend, 18-year-old Wrigley, as we talk about her experiences being diagnosed with autism and her experiences going through the school system and trying to ask for accommodations, and her abysmal experience dealing with the really ableist disability center at her college at, and at her school, and how how unfair they were, and how, kind of one of the one of the pieces of this conversation that really resonated with me the most was how much energy she, as an autistic person, has to expend trying to navigate the social world of college, and that was really, really, 
that just resonated with me and that hit me in a different way than it has in previous conversations. For some reason, listening to her talk about how she felt like she has to be the person everybody wants her to be and pretend to be this person that she's not really kind of struck a chord with me. And I loved sitting down with her and having this discussion. And I wanted to just share it with you. And I hope you enjoy it too. It's a really valuable discussion about navigating the bureaucracy of the school system when it comes to disability, the social system when it comes to disability. It's sharing Wrigley's, or having Wrigley share their experience with me or her experience with me was so valuable. And it just, there were moments when I listened back that I was like, this is really powerful stuff. And I'm excited for you all to hear it. I think talking to people with different disabilities than what I have and different neurodivergences than I have is so cool. And I'm so privileged that I get to talk to you. And I'm so thankful that you, Wrigley, and others in your position would want to sit down with me and tell these stories. So, without further ado, here's my interview with Wrigley, right here on Disability After Dark. Wrigley, hello! Hi, so nice to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you today? Pretty good. I'm excited to be here. So, so happy to have you. I love that you reached out to me and said, I want to talk to you about being a teen. And I was like, yeah, I want to do more of that because I love talking to young people because I was young once and it feels like a century ago. But uh, here we are. So um, you also wanted to talk about so many things today. But before we get into all those, because there's a lot, can you introduce yourself? And tell us a little bit about how your disabilities impact your day-to-day life. Yeah, um, so I'm autistic and um, somewhat recently diagnosed uh, like three or four years ago. Um, But you could always tell my parents were just kind of hippie liberals and didn't want to to get involved with sort of the, the medical world. Um, so, um, I got diagnosed once I started having really bad mental health issues, uh, and now, you know, I've, I've sort of worked to, to manage those with varying degrees of success, but, um, being autistic affects everything about who I am and every little aspect of my day, um. Yeah, I definitely know what it's like when the disability is 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 a huge huge part of your day and how and it's, it can do you feel like now you just got you just got recently diagnosed a couple of years ago. Can we kind of talk about a little bit about what that experience was like and coming into your own diagnosis? Mhm. So, I I had suicidal ideation for year maybe maybe six months before everyone in my family started to agree this is a big problem we need to do something about this um and I went to a therapist and that first therapist was like hey have you ever considered the possibility that you're autistic um and I hadn't really um but I definitely related to some of the autistic stereotypes on tv um so even though there's not really good representation I felt that kind of connection um and so i eventually i stopped seeing that therapist after a couple of times because he forgot to get scheduled an appointment with, with me and i was kind of 
um, off-put by that, but I went to get a developmental assessment, and they're like, yeah, you're probably autistic, but the first time I did that, um, I didn't go through with it. Um, We scheduled an appointment, and my parents took me in, and we were an hour late, Um, and I... I didn't know this at the time, but I have OCD around being late. So it started off, I was really, really anxious and upset that we had misunderstood. They're like, it's fine, it's fine. And I, I couldn't get over that fact. And then I was really anxious about how a diagnosis could affect um, my future ability to get a job um, right. yeah. and be employable and that kind of a thing. Um so I wasn't really sure I wanted to do it. I didn't really like the doctor who was assessing me. Um, um, just sort of sat there and like, asked some questions. And then my mom got really upset um, because it's understandable that she was upset. Like, if your kid is thinking he was talking about suicide all the time, like, that was kind of the natural response. Of course. Um, and so she she stayed and talked to the doctor and I went outside and stood in the hall and um, listened to some music and stared out a window angstily. Um, and then we left without a diagnosis and scheduled another assessment for like three or six months later. And that's when I actually got diagnosed. And so what was that second kind of meeting like when you were when they gave you like a proper diagnosis? I know a lot of people who get diagnosed feel a sense of relief? Did you feel, was there like a sense of relief that you, like you had a name for this now, or was it more anxiety? Um, I feel like the relief came more with the first therapist that brought it up, um, that the diagnosis process was, like, unpleasant and invasive. Um, it started really early in the morning, which is why my mom was confused the first time, um, and I'm not a big morning person, so yeah, I had to like, get up. I like to sleep. <laughs> yeah. Sleeping in is great. Uh, I got up really early in the morning and went and answered all these questions, and the diagnostic assessment, it wasn't really a great match for me or my symptoms or my personality, so they had a lot of tests that didn't really feel necessary and like like word matching games and language skills and things that were clearly aimed at younger children. Yeah. Um, so it sort of felt like a little bit over the top and a little bit pathologizing, but um, I'm glad I went through with it because it's been very helpful in getting accommodations since then. Of course. You mentioned a few minutes ago, and I just want to circle back because it's really interesting. You mentioned that before you were diagnosed, you've been watching kind of autistic representations on TV, and you were kind of, you felt sort of connected to those characters. What kind of shows were you watching, and what, what kind of representation were you watching that was like making you be like, oh, maybe that's my experience? Not good representation. There's not really any good representation out there, but sort of like um, the white male 
savant type character that has lots of obscure useless facts because mm-hmm. um, I am really really nerdy and all of my set special interests are kind of dark um, and I don't necessarily know the appropriate times to share that information so um, I, I related to that um, but I never thought it could be me because it's it's such a a one a one image, one, one picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think there needs to be, like, I think on Grey's Anatomy, like, years ago, they had a doctor who was, who was, like, a, a female doctor who had autism. And, like, that was cool because, like you say, some, so many of the characters are white, male-centered characters. Do you think we need more, like, female and non-binary representation of autism in TV? Absolutely. I mean, I think we just need more disability representation. The representation on TV is not proportional to the real world. No, no, no. Um, and I think, I think TV producers and whoever has all the money has decided that disabled people are too difficult to accommodate and that they don't want to go to the effort to, to have disabled people acting and writing and telling our own stories and so they've just decided we're not going to do this because it's too hard. And I think that's really unfair because, I mean, think about all of the ridiculous things that they do in movie and TVs that cost a ton of money and a ton of effort to make happen. Like, Yeah, so why couldn't they spend that money on hiring, like, proper artists? I, I, well, I totally understand, like, yeah, and I talk about this all the time and in various different ways on my show. Like, yeah, totally get it. Um, I was just looking over the form and one question that popped out for me that was really something you said. You, re- you you know, when you realized that you were autistic, you didn't start realizing how it, how how big it was in your life until you started navigating online communities and then started talking about it there. Can you share a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So after I talked to that first therapist, I was kind of upset a little bit because. I expected just to get like an anxiety diagnosis and maybe do some therapy or get on a medication and manage the suicidal ideation I was having. Yeah. But an autism diagnosis was like, oh, that's that's a permanent thing. That's not something that's I can work way. through. Like people who have depression can get into remission and then have times where they're not depressed people. You know what I mean? But yeah. Being autistic is a full-time, lifelong thing. And there, I, I mean, it, I guess it took me a minute to realize that I had always been autistic. Um, not that this was a new diagnosis, that this was just an explanation of lots of things that had happened throughout my life. Um, and I got every book I could get my hands on, but they're all directed at parents and caregivers and um, they're all written by doctors or um, parents, and none of them were addressed at autistic young people who had just been diagnosed. There were a few books I found for autistic adults who were diagnosed in their 40s, but I didn't really relate to that either because I don't have a family and kids. And, yeah, of course. Um, so I just... I learned a ton about all the medical stuff related to autism and 
that was it. And then a couple years later, I went off to college and I started living in a dorm. And um, my college has a very much of a, like, achieve, achieve, achieve culture. Um, And being autistic and disabled didn't really fit into that model of who I was. But I don't really know how I was in denial because I had accommodations. I worked with the disability office. It was terrible. But Oh, no, I, they were I, terrible? Oh, no, why were they terrible? <laughs> so they're still terrible. I hope they don't hear this. But um, they are like they, – they annoy all students because they're, they're there to prevent the school from getting sued, not oh. to actually help students get what they need to thrive. That's from um, the city. That's I doesn't like that. Yeah, they they they're not creative. Like every autistic person is different, and I don't need more time on tests, but I do need. Um, like I I couldn't go into the cafeteria very often, so I was trying to find a way to get around that. Like, well, we don't have any accommodations for that. Like, well, can we think of some? Can we make some up? Figure them out? And they just don't want to work with you. Everything needs more paperwork, and it's like it's hard enough to see my doctors for the things I need to talk to them about. I don't want yeah. to talk to them about the things you want to talk to them about. Um, and they're really just there for liability reasons, not to actually help people. That sucks. Well, you, the university center, hire me. I can help you become less stabilist and not worry so much about your liability. Wow, that's horrible. Uh, but so what was the experience for you, like, kind of going off to the dorms? Like, like what – actually, let's, let's back up way for a minute. So you, you mentioned how the autism affected you a little bit. Like, what are the – because you said a second ago, like, autism is different for everybody. What are the markers kind of of autism for you? So, like, what parts of autism play the biggest role for you? Hmm. For me, um, it's definitely the social connections, um, but also um, chronic fatigue. So um, I I am very good at doing social situations when they have a script, sort of like a job interview or going to class or that kind of a thing. When I know how to behave, I can do it. But it takes so much energy. It takes so much energy to hide all of the things that aren't socially acceptable. So I I get really, really tired. Um, I work really hard uh, to to do well in school and um, do all of these things that are important to me and society. Um, And then when I come home, I just crash. Like, I don't have any energy left. Um, Because you spend all day, like, holding yourself up and trying to be. That's hard. I think that's something that atypical, sorry, neurotypical people, like, don't understand how much work you put into just trying to be okay and just trying to present yourself as quote-unquote normal. And I feel like, on top of the fact that you're only, you're 18, like, there's you already you have all that pressure too. Like I can't I can't even imagine the pre. I mean I can a little bit because I'm disabled. Like so I I definitely understand the pressure, not from a neurodivergent way, but like from a 
disability way of like trying to be trying to perform this thing for everyone else to think you're okay and then going home and like falling apart. I get that part, but I can't imagine the pressure you're under to try to keep your brain acting quote unquote normal when you when you when it may when it doesn't want to. Or can't. Yeah, and then, so that means I don't really, I never really made any close friends at college. I've got, like, one childhood best friend who I have a great relationship with. But other than that, I feel like I'm being asked to pretend all the time, and so I don't feel like I make any authentic social connections with people because I'm just being somebody who I'm not, somebody who's appropriate for professional, normal college society. and so I don't really have as much desire for social relationships as some people, but I was hoping that there would be somebody I connected with really well at college. Like, um, But I just I, I spent too much energy on everything else to, for that. To, that was never a priority. Yeah, um, yeah. And I can imagine, like, I remember being in college and wanting friendships and wanting all this connection. And, like, I would go to the bars and I'd do all the things that you're supposed to do. And I would drink and I'd be loud and I'd be like, yeah, party. But but I remember feeling kind of very similarly to what you said of, like, it's all fake. I'm all doing this to – I'm doing this to show them that I'm just like them. But I'm not just like them. I can't do this. And I don't know if I even want to do this. And, like, I can imagine for you, like, that was – was that it's playing that game not only is it tiring do you feel does it feel hard to be yourself or hard to like connect with who you are or hard to even know who you are definitely I never ended up playing that game exactly like that because I already know that loud spaces and parties just weren't going to work for me. So I never really tried. I know I can't drink because of medications and that kind of a thing, um, which isn't unusual for my school. Lots of people want to go into government and get security clearances. So there are a lot of people who don't drink. Um, But, you know, in other spaces, like going to clubs or things like that, um, it felt really hard to be myself because I didn't feel like myself is what they wanted. Um, it felt like they wanted this person I'd sort of constructed um, to be right and appropriate and good at all the things that I need to be good at. Um, but that's that's not really who I am. Um, so figuring and, it out. And so when you moved from, like, when you, so when you, like, what is my question? When you moved to like an online space, did that feel more freeing to you? Did you feel more connected to community in that way that you could like say the thoughts and not feel like you had to perform so much? Yeah. Um, I really like writing about how I feel instead of trying to talk about it because when I'm writing, I can be wrong and realize, hey, that's not actually how I feel, and go back and change it. Um, And so writing and just posting it on Instagram and then people relating to it was really, really satisfying um, because 
there's sort of a degree of anonymity there. I mean, yeah. it's not anonymous at all. I know that it could totally be traced back to me. I shared the account with some of my friends and that kind of a thing. But just putting a different name on there and writing how I honestly feel feels really good. And there are other people out there who have similar experiences. I didn't realize that for the longest time. You know, I never went to traditional I, I never went to traditional school since I was diagnosed. And then when I went off to college, my college made disability a very shameful thing, which I'm working very hard to change, but still. Yeah, I was just rereading some of your poem because my next question was going to be, God, you're really off of disability, Alvis, when you questioned them as to why they weren't giving you accommodations. Like, they gave – you basically – tell me that story. So they gave the – you wrote out questions or your – and you gave them to your mom, and then she gave them to them, and they answered them to her. They answered them, They answered her, but they wouldn't answer you. Yeah. So I needed housing accommodations. I needed a space where I could be alone um, and decompress. And so that's something they had sort of a formula for. And um, they they gave me a single dorm room, but then as the semester went on, it became clear that that wasn't entirely working out, that the cafeteria was too loud and bright and overwhelming, and so I wasn't really eating enough, um, which has been a problem for me in the past. And um, I had a hard time going to the bathroom because of OCD, that I was worried I would have to get up in the middle of the night and then I'd have to talk to people was getting up in the night to pee and I'd expend more social energy and so I just developed repetitive habits of going to the bathroom way too many times and it was becoming a problem for me um, and the, I was looking for to to move into one of like the uh, like upperclassmen style housing like apartment style like yeah yeah um, and, um, you know, I was working with a really good therapist, at, not at my school, but in the city my school was in, and they yeah. were being really helpful with, like, accommodation letters and stuff and trying really hard to explain in medical terms to the accommodations office why this was happening to me. Um, and they were totally on my side and advocating for me. And um, I had a disability advocate. And then we were talking to the advocate's boss because for some reason my advocate doesn't really know all that much about housing accommodations, even though that's what I came into the office for. Um, okay. um, sure. So we had we spent a lot of time with her boss who did know about housing accommodations, and the boss um, didn't really want to work with me and wouldn't give me proper answers to why certain things weren't an option or what things would look like and so your school really <laughs> that sucks yeah it does it does and i'm working very hard to change that but this was my first semester and so i was really just focused on self-advocacy and like getting all of my needs met so i could recover at night and have the energy to actually go out and do advocacy um and so all these housing questions um i had 
they wouldn't really give me complete answers. They'd be like, oh, that's just the rule. I'm like, well, the point of an accommodation is that it changes the rule to meet my needs. Yeah. And um, I eventually got, got fed up with not having my needs met and they weren't doing the things that my doctor said were medically necessary. Um, so I was thinking maybe we needed to file a complaint and I really didn't want to do that because, oh my gosh, paperwork and yeah. then they'd be angry at me and retaliation and all that kind of stuff. And also we're taught as disabled people to work with everybody and to be super accommodating. And so all of that too probably triggered like some OCD stuff and some like autistic feeling. I, I get it. I get not in the same way, but I totally know the feeling of like, you don't want to piss anybody off because you need them and you have to work with them and you need to be their friend. And I get it. It's really hard. Absolutely. Um, and so I, I still had all these questions as to why certain things weren't an option and why I was being denied stuff and they just weren't answering them. So I wrote these questions down and I had a pretty good idea of what these questions that weren't being answered were because I put them in emails and stuff, but previously, and I talked over them a bunch and like basically um, why don't you just give me my own fucking apartment? Thank you very much. The end. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I know that this type of housing is available on campus. Why isn't this something you can work on getting me into next semester? Even I'm not saying I need it right now. I just when it's available. Yeah. But they just weren't answering that question. I was just like, we can't. It's against the rules. The housing doesn't let us do that, that kind of a thing. And so I gave these questions to my mom. And, um, you know, I'm really lucky to have a supportive family and supportive doctors and access to health care and access to people who are going to back me up and work with me. And, like, not every college student has that. So the fact that it got to that point is a really big failure on their part. It's like you need to work with the students um, yeah, and the students are in need, front of you. Especially if you know you're autistic, you know what your needs are, and you're, like, voicing them. That can be really hard in that college space to say, hey, these are what my needs are. I know this. And, like, at 18, I didn't know what half my needs were, and I knew I was disabled. But, like, I wouldn't – I would have been too scared. Like, I did it, too, and my – luckily, my university disability office was better than yours, it sounds like. But still, I remember going in there and having to, like – constantly voice my needs and be like here's what I here's what I need and they would figure it out but like where I when I was in college my housing from the beginning was disability centered housing that was set up like apartment style so I had my own room I had a roommate like I had a common kitchen and a bathroom and we did all that but like I didn't I, I certainly didn't live alone but I had we you were given enough space to be alone if you needed it, and it sounds like you initially weren't. Yeah, so I I knew going in that I would need my own place to sleep, and so I got that accommodation, but I didn't know my own needs. I didn't know that going to a communal bathroom at night was going to be a problem for me. I didn't know that the cafeteria would be too loud and too bright for me to eat in regularly and that I would – be needing to find a way to work around that um and so these were problems that came up over the course of the semester um and you know they they weren't willing to work with me um they needed the authority of a parent to tell them yes this is a real problem they needed the authority of my doctor to send them lots of letters saying this is a real problem so you're and, a teen you're an adult and you told them yep. like, so it's and you know you talk about in your form, you say infantilization, and we're like, this is the 
this is like the the epitome of what being infantilized and disabled is. You knew exactly what it was you needed, and the only way they listened to you was through your mom. That's gross. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. like, thank God your mom's an advocate. That's awesome. But like, what about what and when it comes to a time when your family can't advocate for you, or you have to do it? Like, they have to listen to you, and that's not fair. Yeah, and I knew I was asking the same questions as my mom. I had asked them many times before, and my mom got lots more information out of them. They told her about um, the the housing zoning laws with the city and about availability, about all these things that they weren't telling me. And I know that they were the same questions I was asking because I gave the questions to my mom to ask. Yeah. Like, they, they just weren't willing to work with me. Um, and, you know, um, I left that office crying a lot and there wasn't anyone to go to. Um, and so this this semester, um, I'm working with a campus advocacy office that just put together an accommodations advocacy department. And we've been holding meetings with people trying to figure out what other disabled students need. And everybody has this problem with the office. The office is a problem. And so coming up next week, me and a couple other of our top advocates are going to to be meeting with them and other administration officials to talk about how um, we want to see change going forward. So That's really good. And I'm really glad to hear that because it shouldn't be happening. And I'm sorry that, like, you should never leave the disability office of your, of your university crying. You should be leaving there feeling like, yeah, they supported me today. Like, thanks. Like, it's bullshit that you had to be treated that way. And I don't, I don't like it. Yeah. And it is apparently a universal experience for disabled students. Like, um, we joke, like, have you really had the college experience if you haven't lost, left the disability office crying yet? Oh, that's uh-huh. horrible. Well, we just found the tagline for this episode. Uh, <laughs> it's horrible. Um, one of the things you mentioned also in your forum that I wanted to touch on was, um, you know, how we, we talked about it a minute ago. How, how navigating the social world of college is really hard and how it's really tough for you. And you mentioned that you can't really do parties because of all the sensory input, which makes sense. Um, so how do you, like, if you were to pick your, like, favorite social thing to do as a college person with autism, what would you say it is? And how how do you think the social the social connections in college could be made more accessible to autistic students? Well, the first way they could be made more accessible is just if disability were okay on my campus. And we've talked about that a bit, so I'm going to move on. Just, you know, being being okay to be different uh, and feeling like I could be my authentic self would really help because I can't really make connections if I'm pretending to be somebody I'm not. Yeah. Um, and so I really found that the best way – to make connections is in my major, um, and I'm getting to take all of the interesting classes now. Um, I'm graduating in the spring, so I'm taking, like, all of the classes within my major, which is counterterrorism, and I've had a much easier time connecting with the students who have the same niche interests as I do, um, and, you know, a lot of the, the same students end up in the same classes and that really works well for me, that seeing the same people over and over again, I can start to build those connections. Yeah. And connecting over interests as opposed to 
being on just being put on the same floor works a lot better. Yeah, totally. You know, one of the things you said just there kind of sparked a thought in my head, like, uh, because you're doing counterterrorism, this is a totally offshoot question, but here it is. So, like, a lot of the, a lot of the, like, domestic terrorist attacks we've seen recently have been, the, the media immediately goes to, oh, this person was isolated, and we think maybe they had, they're autistic, or, like, you know, some of those, some of those insult guys that run over people with vans, the media will immediately jump to, well, they're alone, and they might have autism, like, how do you feel about that? As somebody studying counterterrorism, how do you feel about the the like immediate jump to this person has a disability? Um, I mean, I think it's it's completely ignoring a lot of other big problems. It's sort of like we don't want to pass legislation to address all of this horrible horrible ideology and domestic terrorism and the militia activity. Yeah. Um so we're just gonna shift focus to mental illness and say that that's 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 it and if we just kept the guns out of the hands of the mentally ill then we would solve the problem um and <laughs> it's, it's like no there's so much bigger than that yeah it's like they're they're ignoring a lot of real issues that need to be addressed um and they're they're ignoring the rise of white supremacist ideology and eugenicist ideology in politics yeah. within politicians, and they don't want to hold themselves accountable for making these ideologies um, acceptable to voice again. Yeah. Um, like the anti-government movement used to be the white supremacist movement, and they rebranded because being white supremacists was um, unacceptable, but now they've gone away from anti-government back to what they originally were, which they've been white supremacists the whole time. They just had a rebrand, and now yeah. they feel comfortable being white supremacists again. I think that says a lot more about our culture than anything else. Yeah, totally. And it says a lot more about our culture than, than tying it to disability right away. Um, but I've been, I, I saw that a lot recently in, like, the Canadian news, that guy that, the guy that ran over all those people in Toronto a couple years ago with his car. They're trying to say now that he he was antisocial, he had autism, he had all these things, and the minute you said counterterrorism, I was like, oh, I have to bring that up because like mm-hmm. I knew what you were gonna say, and I was glad you said it because we should not be connecting these these actual terrorism directly to disability because then just because we're disabled people and whether that whether those terrorists are autistic or not doesn't mean they can get away with murder just because they're like they shouldn't be given a given a free pass because they that's, I don't think that's right and it really shows that people just don't understand autism yeah because you know I think a lot of the reasons that these terrorists are being diagnosed is for a legal argument yeah. and that legal argument doesn't really hold up to scrutiny when you know anything about autism I mean yeah. autistic people still have an understanding of morality and ability to understand that running over with people with a van is wrong. I don't understand how that legal argument would hold up to scrutiny other than people are just ignorant about autism and don't know how yeah. how autism affects people. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I want to shift gears. Because we were at one point a sex podcast, now we're an everything podcast. But you mentioned a little bit about that you are not only are you autistic, you're also asexual, which I think is really 
important to bring up because there's such stigma in the disability community that we are inherently asexual, but we rarely talk to people who are disabled and asexual. So when you put that on your forum, I was like, yes, yes, I want to have all these discussions. So can you can we talk a little about your experience being disabled, being autistic and asexual? Yeah, so I realized I was asexual before I realized I was autistic. Um, when I was like 12 or 13 and we had all the sex ed stuff, I just assumed it hadn't happened to me yet and that eventually I would feel these things. And then I started, it was like 15 maybe, and I listened to a bunch of Dan Savage's podcasts because I was like curious, like what is what is this? And I listened to a bunch, and I realized I didn't feel any of these things, and none of this sounded like fun, and I still didn't get it. I don't know why you would do this. It doesn't seem like it would be enjoyable. Um, and so I called into his show, kind of freaked out, like, ah, will I ever feel like it? I was like, it's okay. It doesn't matter. You're fine either way. Um, and so I learned as much about sex as possible, decided it wasn't for me, and here I am. I'm still very sex positive. Like, I know I'm a stereotype. Although, um, there is some basis to the stereotype um, in terms of autism affecting the endocrine system and, like, just the fact that that hormone production can be affected by autism. Yeah. But it's just as likely that I could have been hypersexual as opposed to asexual, you know, and we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the autistic people who really enjoy sex. Um, yeah, we don't enough. And, and hey, so if you're interested and you're listening and you enjoy sex and you want to come on and talk about that, I would love to chat with you. But I think, you know, I think it's really important. I, I don't think you're a stereotype. I think it's really important that we talk about the fact that there are disabled asexual people. Like we, I think, because in my work as a sexual health advocate, like I talk about how, and I have talked and I have totally erased the fact that there are disabled asexual people and I keep ha- I keep coming back to this realization that there are and I keep talking about it now because I'm like yeah it's not it's not fair to not talk about that part of the experience too yeah and I still want a relationship at some point I haven't really experimented with dating because it's just a lot of work for me, and there are so many other priorities for me right now. But I feel like I would want a long-term partner eventually. I mean, that, I mean, so so you so because there are so many facets now. So you're asexual, but you're not necessarily aromantic. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Okay. All right. So you could totally date and hang out. You just wouldn't do the sexy things. Yeah, I might like. I don't know. If somebody told me how to do it for a partner, I might be fine with that. I'm not sex repulsed. I just don't really want to do it for me. Like, I I don't know. That, that makes sense. I mean, you would do it. But then, then also, I, I guess, for, I wouldn't I wouldn't want you to have to do it just to please somebody. Because if you're not enjoying yourself, then they shouldn't be enjoying themselves either. So, like, but you, I'm sure you could find a nice, a nice middle ground where there was comfort for both sides. As long yeah, as like, if I had a long-term partner that wanted to do that kind of thing, uh, and, and like, it it was a mutually beneficial relationship, and they did, the, like, like, there can be relationship reciprocity that doesn't have to do with sex, and I feel like I could, yeah, I don't know. I've never dated, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. 
I am dated very rarely, so I understand those feelings and not knowing what the hell you're talking about. I totally get it. I'm 36, so I'm twice your age. So I totally get it. Yep, totally understand. Um, one of the things I think is important to talk about in this space is, and you mentioned that because you pre- present very feminine and stereotypically feminine, adult men tend to sexualize you in ways you don't like. Can we talk about that briefly? Just because I think it's important to bring up that sometimes people are gross and they shouldn't be. Yeah. So the first time I was hit on, I was 11. Um, I went over to babysit for um, some neighbors whose grandparents were in town. Um, And I was wearing a tank top. It was the summer. And I wasn't wearing a bra because I didn't quite need one yet. But I'd been practicing and their grandpa was like, oh, you're so pretty and you're smart. You're totally going to go places in life and just, like, look me up and down this really creepy way. Okay. Um, and so that was the first time. But, I, yeah, I've definitely that, – that's, that's always how I've been perceived and how my body has been perceived – I don't really know what my gender identity is. I've sort of been, like, not really thinking about it. Like, I feel like a gender, like, I don't care. I don't identify with anything, but I have this woman's body that's very nice, and I'm going to take good care of it, but. Um, yeah, but, but inside you're not sure, which is totally fine and valid and cool, and you should take as much time as you need to figure out what it is you want. And if you, if you end up realizing that it's neither, great. Um, I, you know, a lot of the reason my body is the way it is are factors outside of my control. Like, yeah. my hair is really long, but I can't stand the feeling of getting my hair cut. Um, and I kind of like my long hair, but if if I could get my hair cut, it might look different. You know, I just don't feel like I have a choice in the matter. Yeah. And then I've always loved rock climbing since before... I hit puberty, and I think the amount of time I spent in the gym affected the way my body developed, um, and that that is just what is perceived as attractive by our society, just like thin white women uh, with long blonde hair, and that that I don't fit the people's expectations. Uh, there, there are all kinds of ways I don't match up with that sexualized ideal of a person um, in terms of intelligence and sociability and the things I want to do. Um, and so the, the, I don't know, I think, I think I just let people assume until I have reason to prove them otherwise. It's like. Yeah. And I'm, I can imagine like, it's really frustrating that you have that your body fits the ideal, but um, you you know that must be really hard to, to to have your body look a certain way, but know that the rest of you doesn't feel that way. Mhm. And you know I try and have like a healthy relationship with my body and my body image, um, but. It's, it's, it, my body feels very disconnected to who I am as a person. And 
you know, I don't, I don't feel like I get to have body image problems because my body looks like what everybody wants their body to look like. And I know that that's silly, but uh, it, it's hard to talk about. Like, um, recently I talked to um, a woman about donating blood. My parents have donated blood my entire life, and it was something I really wanted to do as a little kid, something I want to do now, but I don't quite weigh enough. And, like, that's a problem that I can't talk about because of the way weight is stigmatized in our society. Yeah. And this woman told me she donated weight when she was – or donated blood when she was 18 and weighed about as much as I do and got really sick. And I was like, okay, okay, now I know that this is a bad idea and I definitely don't want to do this. But it's like I couldn't talk to anybody about that. Like, I didn't know if I could ask. You know, just the way – our society talks about bodies is really limiting for everybody. Yeah, um, because what what's happening is they're talking about bodies, but it's so surface level and so not, you know, what we really want to be talking about, which is all the stuff underneath. So I totally get that part. And, like, I, I really appreciate that you are so open about it because I don't think we talk about it enough. Um, you wrote in your form that at one point you almost got kicked out of an autism group, and I want to talk about that story because I loved it, because I think that I think that so many autism and so many disability groups are non-disabled, non-disabled, led by non-disabled people, and so can you tell that story? Yeah, so I did get kicked out of one autism group, and I almost got kicked out of a second. The first one was like a social skills group and it was meant to improve my ability to make small talk and that's something I definitely need like as you can see I'm just sharing deeply personal information with you a person I just met because that's how I form connections so (laughs) I'm here for it I'm also in the same way so don't feel weird about it at all it's totally fine yep but I tend to approach people with with very personal information. So I, so I like me practice making small talk and talking about things that aren't terrorism and aren't my deepest feelings. So I went to this group and it's led by this older white guy who uh, is not disabled. He's neurotypical therapist dude. Um, and he's got this card game and um, there are probably five or six other autistic people there. And um, he's not really good with any of them, but he and I especially don't get along. Um, He wasn't good at tailoring the group to sort of our skill levels. Um, Sorry about that. Oh, living in a technological world. The audio just... It wasn't going to do what I wanted it to do. We're good now, though. Okay, so... So you you cut out, you said the the group you were talking to was from an older white guy. Yeah, and he wasn't good at sort of matching our skill levels. Um that we were all pretty verbal and pretty confident speaking. It was more 
We didn't know how to speak about appropriate topics at appropriate times to make small talk. Um, and so his system just wasn't really working for us. And um, I'm the kind of person that likes to challenge rules and um, that did not work well for him. And so we just kept disagreeing about stuff. Um, and I would push back on the things he said and he wouldn't have time to explain it. That it would be too busy or something else would be too important. And so he just, again, he didn't like to answer my questions. He didn't have the, the patience for me. And I got along really well with everybody else in the group. Like, sometimes he would leave the room and we'd have so much more fun. Um, and that's really what I was looking for. I was looking to meet other autistic people because at this point I hadn't discovered um, the online community. I didn't know anyone else who was autistic. Um, and so it was really cool meeting the people in this group. But he and I just could not, couldn't stop pushing each other's buttons. And so eventually he said, like, you got to shut up or leave. And I decided to leave. Uh-huh. Yeah, sounds like a real douchey person. And then the next autism group led by a neurotypical person I encountered was a few months ago at my school. Um, and this this group, they work really hard to use, like, person-first language. Um, like, m- two people showed up, first of all. Uh, because our school is so stigmatizing of disability. It was, the group was run by the terrible disability office, so I didn't, so I understood why nobody wanted to show up. Yeah, of course not. But me and this other person were there, and um, they were surprised that nobody showed up. So, of course, I explained to them why nobody showed up, because that's the kind of thing I do. I told them, everybody's scared of this office. Um, And they were shocked. I was like, how can you be shocked? I've been advocating about this for like eight or nine months now that this has been a problem. Um, and I mean, I'd never spoken with these people specifically, so I don't blame them, but they were surprised by this and they got a little taste of my personality. So then the group went on and they kept like switching our use of autistic to person with autism as they took oh, notes no. on a group PowerPoint. Yeah. Oh, I don't um, like that at all. That's the worst. No, and one of the people introduced themselves like, oh, I've worked with autistic preschooler or preschoolers with autism, and I'm really excited to work with people with autism who can advocate for themselves, and that just rubbed me the wrong way. That's because, not the same thing. A preschooler and adult, whether you have autism or not, are not the same. It isn't the same. No. Uh, and preschoolers can advocate for themselves just because also, they're not yeah. speaking or advocating the way you expect. Everybody makes their needs known in one way or another. That's like, right. Uh, so that really bugged me. And this whole thing went on, and I don't even remember most of it. Halfway through, it was on Zoom, and I messaged the other autistic person in the group, and we started texting while they were holding their group. <laughs> Um, and at the end, they're like, okay, we're going to hold another one, um, in, in, later in the year, and, um, I'm like, well, I'll be there, but my personality's not going to change, yeah. and the guy just laughed nervously, and I haven't heard about the next group, so. <laughs> Did you, do you think there might be some value in you starting your own group? Yeah, that's part of the project, 
that our advocacy team is working on, um, like going forward towards the next semester. We yeah. had one sort of a meeting, um, just a general disability town hall um, about the disabled experience on our campus. Um, and we mostly got allies, but um, we found a couple of disabled people, and we're going to sort of work to to keep that going. Like, it's it's going to be hard because people are really scared to sort of come out. Um, yeah. And, lot, like, people with invisible disabilities don't want to say so in this space. Of course. So we got to, like, like, so like yeah. Would, yeah. We got a lot of work to do before people will really start showing up, but that's that's definitely something we've been working on. Well, if you need an internationally known advocate to help you with that, just let me know. And if you need me to write it out for, like, talk about it, I'm, I'm more than happy to. Uh, we'll see if we can get the school to pay you. Yeah, because my bees eight million dollars. No, I'm kidding. But if, if if you know they do, if you do need help, I think aside from me being paid, which would be nice. But even if I wasn't, like, it's so important to have that recognition on a college campus and on a, in a space where you're supposed to feel supported. So seriously, whatever I can do, if you need somebody like that, people know I'm happy to lend my voice to that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Because I know, I remember how, you know, I have physical disabilities, but I'm learning now as I get older, I also have physical disabilities like, like ADHD and like depression and all these things that I, you know, that we can see. So I'm learning about being also invisibly disabled too. And so it can be hard. It can be really hard. So I'm happy to help wherever I can. Thanks. Um, one of the things I would love to hear from you about, because I think it's so important, is, and I talk about this a lot on my Twitter, is people being ableist when criticizing politicians. Oh, yes. So tell me your thoughts on that. Um, I think it is very pointless because our politicians are doing such horrible things, and there are so many ways to criticize them that why would you take the ableist route? That that's yeah. not even a very poignant criticism. Not even good. You, like if you're gonna be critical, yeah. you do better than that. Like one of the things I saw the other day on Twitter was like, Donnie wears diapers, which is obviously like saying that Donald Trump's a baby. And I was like, first of all, like I'm wearing, and I tweeted about it. I was like, I'm wearing a diaper right now, and I'm not a bigoted asshole like that. So if we could like please disconnect disability from this. Like it's just so. It's and you know all the months where. Like I see that I see it on shows like Jimmy Fallon and like um, Seth Meyers, where they'll make a joke about how he can't like walk up Air Force One or how like he can't hold a cup, and it's like do you do you realize that you're totally perpetuating the idea that if you can't do something, we should laugh at you? He also can't condemn white supremacists. Isn't that a bigger problem? <laughs> yeah, like we yeah exactly. <laughs> So I love when you put in a form because I was like, yes, I want to talk about this and I can talk about this all day. Like I, I, like I hate and I abhor Donald Trump, but to do, to make fun of his body changing or his disabilities is not okay. It's absolutely not relevant to any of the things that are going wrong in our country or in politics or in the world in terms of policy. Like there are so many things that that 
are terrible and need to be criticized and need more attention. There are all these issues that we don't talk about enough, and you're choosing to use your big platform to complain about the way somebody moves or speaks. It's like, complain about the way they won't pass a coronavirus bill. Yeah, and they're not even complaining. They're just making fun, which, like, like I understand for the late-night, like, fodder it is funny for a second but when you look at it underneath you're like oh no there's a huge problem with what you just said and you have millions of people laughing like watching it and laughing about it that's that's like that's a big problem um i would say make fun of donald trump but don't use his disabilities or his ability level against him that's the way you do it like and i just i'm glad you brought it up because we haven't talked about it enough i don't think in our discourse and i want to use my platform to say don't make fun of people's disabilities, even if they're horrible people. Don't do it. And, I mean, if we're talking about representation and helping people understand their disabilities, talking about it in a derogatory way on a big platform like a late-night show is just, like, absolutely the wrong direction. We want to be heading in the other direction, yeah. adding more disabled representation. Yeah, totally, completely. Um um, I love also that you said in your forum, and I'm just reading it now, and I just found this part of it. I love you said you wouldn't be me if you weren't artistic. And I think that's a really powerful statement. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, it's like, I often feel like people only value my presence somewhere because of the tangible skills I bring, like knowledge about a topic or physical abilities and I was like I wouldn't have any of those other abilities that you think are so cool and useful if I weren't also autistic because being autistic helps me focus it helps me be really passionate about the things I'm passionate about and it's helped me learn all of these things that you now want to take advantage of so if you want me to tell you about terrorism or whatever, you have to be accommodating of the way I do it because uh, I can't concentrate if I don't stim sometimes. And so if you want me to learn stuff and tell you about the stuff I've learned, you have to tolerate my stimming and moving in weird ways that aren't socially acceptable. And if you want me to do these things, I, you have to, you have to, deal with the parts of me that you don't like because the parts of me that you don't like allow me to create the parts that you do want to take advantage of. Let's go back a little bit. No one should take advantage of you, first of all. Secondly, secondly, if the parts of Wrigley that you don't like are ableist, then you should fucking confront those because Wrigley's awesome, so fuck you. Secondly, th- or thirdly, what <laughs> I don't like how you said people have to tolerate your stimming, so I'm going to change that language for you. I think people should celebrate your swimming. And also, what is your, like, I know different artistic people have different swimming stuff. What is your, like, go-to swimming thing to do? Um, well, it's been changing over the past couple of years. It used to be that my leg would just bounce up and down. Okay. Um, and that was because I wanted to be doing other things. But um, before I was diagnosed and for a while afterwards, I worked really hard to try and hide all of the behaviors that I wanted to be doing. Yeah. Um, and so I would do things like bounce my leg up and down and tap my fingers. 
and stuff that is really discreet. But that's not what I wanted to be doing. And I found um, that as I kept repressing things, I started doing things like digging my fingernails into my skin and scratching at my skin with a pencil and stuff that started to leave marks. Um, And it became a problem that my therapists were concerned about. So I've been working really hard to sort of replace those behaviors and get comfortable doing big or unusual movements in public because otherwise I bring it in and you hurt yourself. Yeah, and hurting myself is still discreet. And so sometimes that that can be really hard for me because the pain pain is a very is very is a very sensory feeling. Like yeah. pain it distracts the part of my brain that needs distracting and that big or inappropriate movements would satisfy um, because it's such a strong feeling like swinging my arms around both of those create big feelings and the only way to create a big feeling discreetly is to scratch up my skin and hurt myself I know I know that that's a really bad thing Um, and so I've been working on getting comfortable doing the other things that meet that need in public even if people stare or make me really uncomfortable. Well, to anyone listening, don't fucking stare. Let somebody stim so they don't hurt themselves. And let let Wrigley do what they need to do so that if they're comfortable, leave, them, like, just leave people alone. Let them do what they got to do. Um, this was such a great conversation. I, and thank you so much for being so vulnerable and so open. I have one question that you kind of you mentioned earlier about suicide ideation that you were having prior to your diagnosis, and I'm going to put a content warning here. We are going to talk about suicide, suicide ideation for a minute. I'm going to also put it at the beginning so you will have heard me say this episode. We'll talk about suicide ideation. But I want to ask you, since being diagnosed and since kind of coming to terms with all this and as you're coming to terms with your autistic self, has your, has your suicide ideation lessened somewhat? Yeah, I mean, it's been a process. Um, You know, I had a very pragmatic approach to not wanting to be alive anymore, um, which is why the first therapist I ever saw assumed that I was autistic, because I was like, you know, I just keep having to do these horribly unpleasant things. I don't want to do any more horribly unpleasant things, and there aren't these things that bring me joy. Um so it was very much like a mathematical equation for me, like yeah, being like unhappy. if I if I if I if I remove myself from the world, then this feeling will, for me will go away, and I won't bother anybody, and I can just be done, and it's done. I, I understand where that would come from. Yeah, and so um, that I've been been working on that, and I think uh, really sort of the solution is finding ways to bring more joy into my life and finding ways to sort of balance out those negative things because there's always going to be negative things. But I can make my life worth living. Um, And so, you know, um, sometimes um, I'll have, like, really intrusive thoughts about wanting to die, and sometimes I'll have thoughts that 
I know are authentic. And so I've had a lot less of the authentic feeling like I really want to die thoughts. And so the intrusive thoughts are still there, but I know that those thoughts are manageable. Yep. Um, and so just learning more about why I experience these things has made, has given me like a way to manage them and a way to know that even if I'm not doing a great job of managing them right now, eventually I will. And I found lots of like little strategies. Like um, I will just pick a thing. Like I want to go get bubble tea tomorrow because that gives me a reason to lift up until tomorrow morning. Yeah. And so little things like that um, have, have sort of, given me a purpose and I've just found all these strategies to deal with it when it comes up. So like when I start to feel suicidal now, I'll pick something that I want to do in the next couple of days. I'm like, I'm going to go do this very small thing that will bring me joy. And that's, that's what I'm going to live for. And the thing I've learned is that suicidal ideation passes. It passes really quickly, even if it doesn't feel really quick while it's happening. Yeah. Um, so if I can just, make it through the next 20 minutes, hour, night, whatever it is, if I can make it through that amount of time, it will feel okay again. Yep. Um, And so, you know, I've been having a lot less of those moments where, where I feel just like absolute despair. That's been happening less and less. I'm so glad to hear that. And again, thank you. So much for bringing light to the conversation of, of of suicide and disability because I don't think I think a lot of people with disabilities have intrusive thoughts and have suicidal ideation but don't have a place to talk about it because disability discourse tells us in one way or another to fight or to die but there's nowhere in between to like have that conversation so thank you for being so so raw about it and I know it's not easy to talk about and so I appreciate that. Um, um, this and, was sorry, go ahead. And I know a lot of disabled people, myself included, feel like a burden a lot. And that's one of the main contributing factors to suicide. Like I've gone through like a lot of those assessments and checklists, like to to like risk assessments, like how, how dangerous am I to myself right now? Yeah. And on those is always like, do you feel like a burden? Do you feel like the world would be better off without you? And our society makes disabled people feel like a burden and then mm-hmm. acts surprised when disabled people feel suicidal sometimes. And it's like, you're helping us feel this way that is scientifically known as a risk factor for suicide. Like, yeah. we need we need to find a way to stop making disabled people feel like a burden and how, and like, like therapists don't have strategies for coping when you feel like a burden, at least none of the ones I've encountered. I've encountered a lot. And that, that burden feeling is a big part of it. And it's something we need to do more about. And that's, that's the reason I was drawn to your work, I think is because of the way you talk about that is really helpful and really important. And oh, well, thank you. It's so nice to know that the little tweets that I put out make people go, oh, yeah, there are, like, I, I always, I'm so humbled because I do this stuff in my bedroom, like, you can kind of see that, you're, we're in my bedroom, basically, right now, so, like, 
So, like, I do have my bedroom, my home office, and I never think that it's going to do something. So, to know that, and, like, you and I have very, have vastly different disabilities from each other. So, to know that, like, something I, and a lot of stuff you've said right now is resonating with me, too. Like, the stuff that we just talked about being a burden and, like, some of the ways that autism has played a role in your life. I'm like, oh, there are 10 million tweets here that I can talk about. So, I really appreciate the work you're doing, too. And I think for somebody so young to be able to, because when I was 18... I didn't know shit. Like, I'm only learning stuff now. So the fact that you're using your experience as a young person to talk about disability in this way is so valuable and so under, so under talked about. Like, it's, what you're doing is really awesome. And the way that you, and I love how, I love how you said a bunch of times in this interview, you were like, and that's what I'm telling you my whole life, right? Like, I, I love that because that's what I do. So I feel, I felt also a connection to you. Yeah, I think the internet is really good for creating cross-disability solidarity. Like, I identified with the autistic label before I identified with the disabled label. Um, But reading about the experiences of other people with different disabilities really helped me realize, oh, yeah, these experiences follow us no matter the disability like there are there are some things that just connect people and I didn't know that and it feels really good to make those connections and it makes me feel less alone which I think again is is good for not being suicidal is feeling connected to people so I mean and that's kind of what we're all here for is to, to not feel so alone so that like, I really appreciate that and also like I know given what you told me about your neurodiversity and how and how much energy it takes to do stuff like Thank you so much for sitting down for the amount of time you did today and, like, telling these stories and being so open. Like, I'm sure that it took a lot of energy for you to do that, so I appreciate that so much. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And thanks for making me feel so comfortable. I feel like this was a a good conversation. Anytime, and that's my job, and that's what I do. And so, uh, But, again, the stuff you said, I'm really, really proud of it. How do the people listening, if they want to follow you, how can they follow you and where can they do that? Um, I'm on Instagram at autistic.academic. Um, I write short essays and put them up with fun photographs I take. Um, so if you want to read more about autism, check me out there. And you all should because none of us know enough about it and none of us talk about the lived experience. And watching Sia ruin a movie with an autistic person is not the way to do it. So follow Wrigley at Autistic academic dot academic on Instagram, and I'll make sure that all your stuff is on the show notes. And this was a, such a great interview, and I'd love to chat more with you after this. Absolutely, thank you so much. Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Bye. Bye. All right, that was another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories, a part of the Wheels on the Ground Network. I'm really really happy you came to this one. If you want to follow my work. You can head over to www.drewgerza.com and you can follow me on all my socials at, at Drew Gerza. So Instagram and Twitter at Drew Gerza. You can also follow the podcast at DisAskDarkPod on Twitter. Remember, if you want to be a part of the show, you can email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. Tell us a little bit about your story. Tell us a little bit about why you want to be on the show, and we'd love to have you. The show is, again, no longer just a sex and disability podcast. 
We want to talk to you about everything. So drop us a line. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Remember, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or as much as $5 a month or more to keep a bright light shining on these stories. I'm your host, Drew Gerza, your disabled daddy. Thank you so much for listening to this Wheels on the Ground production, and um, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Drew Gerza and Wheels on the Ground Productions. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright 2020-2021